92% of that 1.6 million were first trimester abortions because they weren't wanted. And so on this Right to Life Sunday, I just wanted to remind you that our nation is slaughtering boys and girls every day because of the choice of people that, that people make. And we need to be praying. We need to pray. And we need to be realizing what's happening here in America and how scary it really is. And so I wanted to, on this Right to Life Sunday, just remind you of that, with that little video and just those statistics. And uh, abortion, another interesting statistic is this year they'll say American women who are living today, 44% of them will have had an abortion in their lifetime. 44% of American women will have an abortion in their lifetime. Those facts are scary, aren't they? So I just want to encourage you to pray. Pray for our nation and uh, pray that people would choose life and not death. Just several announcements we want to share with you this morning. Again, if you're a guest, we truly count it a privilege to have you with us today. On our bulletin is a guest registration form. We'd ask that you fill that out, tear it off, and drop it in the offering plate just a little bit later in our service so that we can have a record of your visit. Out in the lobby to my left, to your right, is a guest center. At that guest center is a gift bag for you. So if you're a guest today, we want to encourage you to stop by the gift center there, or the, the guest center afterwards and pick up a gift this morning just as our way of saying thank you for being with us today. Just several announcements we want to be reminding you of. Uh, our ladies' Bible study for the winter and spring is getting ready to start. That meets on Tuesday mornings at 9.30 and then on Thursday nights at 6.30. They're going to be doing a series called Anointed, Transformed, and Redeemed, the Life of David. And uh, so lady, if, ladies, if you're interested, please let the office know that so uh, we can order the books by no later than a week from Monday. This Wednesday night is our annual meeting, and uh, for all of our families, I want to mention to you that out in the lobby is the 2012 annual report, and uh, we'll ask that you stop by and pick a copy of that up, one per family, please, and uh, pick that up and peruse through it between now and Wednesday night. And again, if you're a member of Mount Calvary Church, we want to encourage you to be here on Wednesday night uh, for this very important meeting. Uh, we will have child care that evening so that our younger parents can be here for the meeting. Um, one of the things that we like to do is just keep you up to date when we have a deacon's meeting. Just uh, some of the things that we talked about, and I want to go over that real quick. Uh, this week, we spent a lot of time in the meeting talking about health insurance, and uh, health insurance was going to go up for us if we stayed with our carrier almost 40%, and so we switched carriers, and uh, it's going up not quite, not quite that much now, about th a little over $3,000 a month still, though. And uh, so uh, we, just, we spent a lot of time talking about that. We, uh, uh, the deacons approved some sound equipment for our high school so that we wouldn't, when they do their plays and things like that, we wouldn't be dragging all the equipment from here over there. So they approved that for the high school to buy some sound equipment. Uh, we talked about Super Bowl Sunday. All the deacons are going to the Super Bowl. No, not really. <laughs> our services that day 
will be, our evening service will be 5 to 6, Awana will be uh, 5.55 to 6.30, and then Ignite has their own Super Bowl celebrations. So it's uh, 4.55, I'm sorry, 4.55 to 6.30, 4.55 to 6.30, 5 to 6 in here for Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the capital campaign and the vote last week. We probably spent about an hour and a half going through those things and voted, uh, we're going to um, move on. We'll be sharing some more things uh, this week about that. I had conversations with Impact Stewardship, uh, Gary Effinger, this week, and they actually, Gary wants to help us get moving. He's already planned to be here a week from Wednesday night to meet with uh, several of us for the stewardship campaign, and uh, he wants to help us. So uh, they sent us a brand new contract and lowered our first payment to just um, to $4,000 instead of $8,000. So they're really wanting to help us and work with us. I was thinking this week, one of our deacons mentioned to me, you know, if every family uh, would give $25 for the next four weeks that we could put towards that, we could make the initial, more than the initial payment within the first month. So just think about that, how God might lead you there. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. Um, they approved the pastor's uh, and Dr. Sheard's housing allowance. They have to do that every year. Uh, we have a housing allowance. The government lets us have that. Um, so those were some of the things that we talked about this week. And it was a long meeting. They didn't get over until 11 o'clock. So I uh, appreciate the guys a whole lot. They are tremendous servants of the Lord, and we are excited about that. I do want to mention to you that at the annual meeting this week, we will be voting on the Cornerstone Architect, and we did not do that last Sunday. We'll be bringing that to you. And uh, also, we will be passing out some ballots about using uh, the CD fund uh, that is there, and for those who gave to that, we'll be passing out a ballot about that on Wednesday night. So those are things that are going on. We would like to keep you up to date and give you information. Again, we are excited about you being here. Let's just open our service in prayer. Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this day and the opportunity to come and to worship you and just to be able to, uh, Lord, sing praises to you this morning, to be able to lift your name up. Uh, through song, and then I pray for Pastor John as he opens the Word of God and, again, preaches and teaches this morning that the Holy Spirit that fills him, Lord, just might anoint him with power this morning, and you might use him, Father, to challenge us and comfort us and encourage us with the Word of God. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing. Open up the heavens. We've waited for this day. We've waited for this day. We've gathered in your name, calling out to you. Your glory like a fire, awakening desire. We'll burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Open up the heavens. We want to see you. Open up the floodgates. A mighty river flowing from your heart. 
Hostetter and Matt Stern are going to come. All four of these men's names are on the ballot. You will be choosing two of these men to uh, represent the congregation as deacons this year. So, Ryan, you come. some questions uh, about what what I, what was going to happen to me uh, so that evening I couldn't sleep I had to go to my parents uh, we talked and they they led me to the Lord that night um, after that a few years later I was I was baptized and um, I would say uh, the next major step in, in my spiritual life uh, after I graduated high school, I was able to go to a, a week-long missions trip to New York City. Uh, there, I realized that, that Christ was in my life, but he was not, he was not number one. He, he wasn't my, my number one priority. So I rededicated my life, um, and I also met a beautiful girl. Her name was Jenna. And uh, for the next four years, we maintained... Uh, a long-distance relationship. We went to. She went to college out in Ohio at Cedarville, and I stayed local here. And uh, four years after that, or after those four years, um, we were we were married. And since then, we've been blessed with three children: Owen, Evelyn, and Grayson. And uh, they truly are a blessing. Um, but I, I feel like I need to be honest with you guys. When when Phil called me uh, about filling this position. Uh, the first thing that popped into my head were excuses. Um, but I like Phil. Uh, <laughs> he, m many of you don't know this, but we, we taught doctrine and theology together. Um, and then he decided to leave Cubbies. I'm still there. I'm still there, but Phil, Phil left Cubbies. Uh, but no, I like Phil, so I said I'd think about it and get back to him. Uh, well, while that that time uh, transpired, uh, I read in Philippians chapter 2 that uh, it says, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then it goes on and talks about how when Christ came down to earth, he humbled himself. And uh, I, had to, I had to do that myself. Um, but uh, so you can see I'm up here now. Um, I prayerfully considered it, and with my wife's blessing, um, I, uh, I'm willing to, to run for the position. Um, we've been here for about 10, a little over 10 years, um, and I've been able to serve um, on a couple different committees. I've been able to serve through Upwards, Awana, uh, Leading Small Group, and, and, uh, and the school board. So, uh, and I, I also just want to take this time to thank each one of you who has um, touched my family, who has served my kids, 
or who I've been able to serve with. Um, I just want to thank you for that. All right, following Ryan, we got to adjust this a little bit. I'll try and stay away from the jokes, though. Um, that, was, that was great, Ryan. Thanks. Um, I'm going to use a note card. Uh, I would also like to start by thanking a lot of you here. Um, a lot of my best friends, well, my best friends are in this church, uh, some men I've grown very close to. Um, any, any person I look to for any type of spiritual counsel or any leadership is in this church. So, you know, Liz and I have pretty much grown up here. And we'd like to thank you for that. Um, I'm extremely humbled by the opportunity and the, uh, the request to, to run for this position. Um, my first uh, answer was no as well. I had a, an excuse. But uh, right after that, some major things changed and the excuse went away. So I called Joe back up and said, hey, Joe, my excuse left. So I guess the answer changed. Um, so here we are today. Um, so if, if anybody doesn't know me, uh, I'm Matthew Stern. My wife, Elizabeth, is back with the uh, two-year-olds. Uh, we have three little children, Haley, Amelia, and Gabriel. They keep us very busy. Um, I work for the National Guard, and um, we uh, are some small group leaders here. Uh, we have five families to meet with us, and we also uh, are the coordinators for the First Impressions Ministry. Um, my testimony starts with one of the first things I can remember as a child. I was, I think, five, and we had a VBS, and I can, I can remember it very vividly, uh, going down and asking Jesus into my heart, and again, it's one of the first major memories I have, which, you know, it's very fortunate. Uh, we were a, a very um, God-focused family as a young child, uh, and then, like many families, uh, that started to change as I grew older. Um, we started going to church less and less, and I went to public school, and that meant a lot of things changed in my life as well. My focus changed. Um, then our family had troubles. My parents divorced uh, when I was 19, but it was an ongoing thing from about 14 where I had seen the problems, and uh, there was a lot of confusion in that, and uh, a lot of things not to get into right now, but... Uh, that obviously led to a lot of questions I had and didn't strengthen my faith. Um, but I also, through high school, I always had a constant calling. And I, you know, I credit that back to that decision of a five-year-old that I was always involved in a youth group or I always defended um, Christianity even though I wasn't walking in faith at all. Um, if anybody, which I'm glad none of you knew me from back in high school, uh, my wife never would have dated me back then, I always say, because <laughs> we did go to school together. Um, but uh, then at, um, at 18, I, I made a major decision. I moved to, uh, I went to Chile as a foreign exchange student, and um, that kind of started separating me from my normal habits and what I had been doing and the people that I had as friends. Uh, then I joined the military when I came back, and then shortly after my training, I was deployed to Germany. So I spent about two and a half years away from home, which you know, kind of opened my eyes and made me start thinking about bigger things. And when I got home, I was 
I was ready to, to grow up pretty much. And uh, I really was just seeking you know, truth and uh, direction. And I, I was very fortunate. I found some men that, that taught me and showed me what a godly man could look like. So I renewed my, uh, my commitment. I, I uh, made pretty much a, at 22, made a reaffirmation, you know, a recommitment. And uh, really just got focused in life and, and made a lot of changes. Um, and right about that time, Liz and I started dating. And uh, if any of you remember that, eight quick months later, we were married <laughs> in this church. Uh, so that, that was um, the beginning of, of us, the beginning of our life together. Um, so really from there, it's just been growing in this body and just learning you know, mo most of my, my knowledge comes from those last eight years. Um, I'd like to leave you with three things that uh, I, don't, I don't have a promotional card out there or any type of advertisement. <laughs> so these are my three, uh, the three things I'm excited about. Um, first is I I'm really excited to continue to equip the men of this church to succeed with our vision. And we have such a, such a strong vision statement out there and just making sure that the guys are equipped. Number two, um, and this is kind of the way I, I live my life, if you know, it's I want to make sure the men are motivated to, you know, to encourage men to do that and to pursue that. And number three, of course, is to raise a godly family, you know, that we could be, uh, you know, the light to the world and the testimony of those around us. So thank you very much.
in 1680, Joachim Neander, uh, a German gentleman uh, in studying Psalm 103 and 105, penned the words to this next song, Praise the Lord the Almighty. And he took a folk song of the day that was written in 1665 um, and set the song to music. It's a brilliant lyric. Uh, let's stand together and sing praise to the Lord the Almighty. Oh, my soul. 
band is making their way back to their seats. Um, <clears throat> if you've been with us this year, uh, you know that we are uh, in a series called the E100, uh, Central 100 Stories of the Bible. And uh, we're on week three of that. And so just to kind of clear up any confusion that you might have, there are five stories a week. So there are seven days in a week, five stories. You can read those five stories in any of those seven days that, that you would like. But uh, we're on the third week, so hopefully you're through 15 stories. And uh, out in the lobby there on the, on the table, the black tablecloth, there are a few more planner guides out there as well as a bookmark that kind of leads you through uh, the reading. So I encourage you to kind of read with us on this journey. Uh, when we get to Sunday mornings, we'll pick one story from those five that you read this week and, and, and we'll talk about it. And so we're gonna be in Genesis chapter 37 this morning. So if you wanna turn there, uh, we'll be there. But before we open up God's word, let's just uh, pause for a moment of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come here today and thank you for your love for us. Lord, thank you for this family that you have assembled here at Mount Calvary. I thank you for uh, just the testimonies that we heard from uh, this morning and, and from the, the men last week of just uh, uh, running for the position of deacon. And we thank you for all the many individuals who serve all throughout our ministry. Lord, without them, we, we wouldn't be able to, to do what we do here at Mount Calvary, Lord. So thank you for the gifts, the abilities that you've given all of our, uh, all of our servants and a heart to serve. And Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that, uh, uh, that we have hope and that hope is found through a personal relationship with you. And, and Lord, we just thank you for uh, the, the fact that, that, that our service is just a, a celebration of that personal relationship and a desire to, to, to share with others how they can have a personal relationship with you. Lord, you know in our family, as we gather here this morning, there are many hurts and, and, and things that, that uh, are heavy on our hearts. And Lord, we give them to you. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that... Uh, Arlene and, and, and Ron came home from the hospital this, this, this weekend, and just thank you for, for that. Lord, we, we think of uh, those this week. We think of Melanie as she's going to have surgery tomorrow. Lord, just pray that you be with her and guide the doctor's hand. Be with Dave as he has some more tests tomorrow. Pray that those would go well, Lord. And, and for any that, that's, that wasn't even mentioned this morning, Lord, we are thankful that what's important to us is important to you. And that you're the God of all comfort. And no matter what we find or what situation we're going through, you're there right with us to comfort us. And this morning, Lord, we just want to thank you for your word, the word of God that you have given us to show us how to live life on this earth. We're thankful that it's true. We're thankful that it gives us direction. And Lord, this morning as we open up your word, I pray that you might speak through it and you might challenge us to how you want us to live our lives. May everything that uh, is said bring you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me again, like I said, to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, you might realize that I'm sounding a little bit different today. I'm kind of working on a head cold or trying to fight a head cold, so uh, 
uh, you're probably hoping my voice gives out pretty quickly and we're done. Uh, we we will, will try to see how this goes. Uh, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to start at verse 12. But before we do that, the title of this message is A Dysfunctional Family. And no, I'm not talking about your family. Uh, that, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. But we're going to look at here in, in the, uh, this chapter of Genesis 37, uh, a dysfunctional family. And as I was thinking about dysfunctional families and reading this account uh, this week, I, I kind of realized that, you know what, we live in a world that's entertained and celebrates dysfunctional families. Think about that for a second. In, any, in almost any entertainment medium, books, TV shows, or films, the theme of family dysfunction has become very, very prevalent. It's very common. From Phineas and Ferb to even my beloved Duck Dynasty, a common theme of those shows is some sort of family or relational instability. It's some kind of dysfunction. And, and we laugh at those things, but when we get down to it, God didn't create our families to be dysfunctional. And he doesn't want our families to be dysfunctional. And so this morning, we're going to look at a dysfunctional family and, and with the hopes of learning just a few things from this family here in Genesis chapter 37. And let's pick up at verses 12 through 14. It says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near she their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent them off from the valley of Hebron. And so very, very first thing in this story is we see Jacob or Israel's commandment. And it's a commandment for Joseph. And the commandment is simply this, go check on your brothers. Go check on your brothers. Now, if you uh, are a family and, and have more than one sibling, you might have heard this before. Maybe your mother or your dad heard something going on downstairs, and, so they, and you were upstairs, and what's the natural thing? Hey, go check on your brother. Go, go, go check to see what's going on. And we know that Joseph's brothers are away with their dad's flocks. Now, just think about this. They're away, but it's not like they're in the backyard. You know, it's not like, hey, Joseph, go in the backyard and check on your brother's. No, they are away near Shechem, and we're going to talk a little bit more later about how far away that is. And so Joseph's brothers are away, and Joseph is sent to observe and report if everything is going well. So, so far, the story is starting out, and it seems pretty normal, right? Probably something that would happen in the average family today, you know? The older brother may be sent to, or an older sibling sent to check on some other siblings. Not, not too uncommon. But you know, before we get any further in this story, there's some important information that we need to realize from the beginning of the chapter. In verse 2 of chapter 37, it says, This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, <clears throat> was tending the flocks with his brothers the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. 
This sheds some light onto why this is happening. Joseph is sent to, uh, to check on his brothers, and these brothers have already proven not trustworthy. They've already proven not to be trustworthy in tending the flocks. Because when Joseph was 17, he came to his dad and said, hey, Dad, something's going on with my brothers. They're not doing their job. He snitched on his brothers. And so that's an important piece of information to realize as we go on this story. As we continue on in verse 3, it says, Now Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age and made him an ornate robe for him. <clears throat> so now we see that Joseph was the favorite child. Joseph was the favorite child. I, I joke around with Haley all the time at home that Zachary's my favorite child. Well, Dad, why can't I do this? And Zachary can, because he's my favorite child. And, and she just looks at me like, like, uh, like I'm crazy and that she doesn't like that answer. But, but Joseph was the favorite child. And you know what? His brothers knew it because they saw that stinking robe that the dad gave Joseph, that beautiful robe of many colors that I'm sure Joseph wore with pride, and every time he wore that, his brothers are like, oh yeah, that's right. Dad likes him more than he likes us. Joseph is the favorite child. So now we see Joseph's brothers, they're, they're not real trustworthy. They weren't doing their jobs. Joseph is the favorite child. And then in verse four, it goes on and says, when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him, about him. And so we hear we see the brothers hated Joseph so much they couldn't even say anything nice about him. This gives a little perspective to this, uh, this observe and report mission that Joseph is sent on. Either Jacob is out of touch with the family dynamics or he clearly underestimated the interpersonal issues between the brothers. But there are some, there's some issues there. They don't like you. The brothers don't like Joseph a whole lot. And we see in the very beginning, Jacob says, hey, go check on your brothers. Let's pick up in verse 15 and read from to, to verse 17. A man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I've heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And so we see, you know, we, we saw Jacob's commandment, go check on your brothers. And now we see Joseph's commitment. And his, Joseph's commitment was pretty simply, hey, no problem, dad. No problem, dad. Now, I don't know about you, but I gave my dad a lot of, hey, no problem, dad, when he asked me to do something. And I hear a lot of that at my house when I ask Haley or Zachary to do something. Hey, no problem, dad. I'll do that after Zachary is done with his NBA 2K13 game that just continues to go on forever and ever and ever. Or as, as when Haley's done on her touch. And, and I was the same way. My dad asked me to do something. Yeah, I'll do it later. But Joseph says, hey, no problem, dad. And he goes. He's like, you know what? No problem, dad. And we see Joseph's response was immediate. Without question, without hesitation, he accepts his father's assignment and he leaves. He leaves for Shechem. He's on the road. There's no, hey, I'll do it later, dad. I'm kind of busy, dad. He leaves. His response was immediate. And there are no, hey, 
but dad, don't you know that my brothers, they don't like me. This is not a good idea. There was, there was, there was no but. There was also no but, dad, Shechem is far away. It's 50 miles on foot from where they're at. 50 miles. Joseph doesn't say, dad, that's a long, long journey. Can't you send somebody else? Obedience to his father's command was his first priority. So, Je so Joseph's response was immediate, but his response was also insistent. In verse 15, he gets to Shechem, and what happens? Nobody's there. No one's there, so what does Joseph do? He walks around searching for his brothers. He goes looking for them. He didn't find them right away, so he goes walking around. Hey, I'm going to go look for my brothers. That didn't be, be, become very fruitful to him. So he sees some guy and he says, hey, I'm looking for my brothers and their flocks and my dad's flocks that they're keeping. Have you seen them? And the man answers, hey, they're, they've moved on to Dothan. So what does Joseph do? He's, he continues on the journey. He goes 15 or so more miles south to find his brothers. Now the normal, maybe average person would say, hey, my dad sent me to Shechem. I got to Shechem, the brothers weren't there, I'm done, I'm done. You know, they're in trouble. They said they were there, they're not there. I fulfilled my obligation, I'm going home. But Joseph didn't. Because Joseph realized that not only was he sent to Shechem, but most importantly, he was sent to check on the welfare of his brothers. And if that meant walking 15 more miles, he was gonna walk 15 more miles because he wanted to obey his dad. He wasn't looking for a way out and say, hey, you know, I, I did what you told me to, Dad. I went to Shechem. They weren't there. Sorry. Send somebody else. I'm done. He was insistent. You know, he, he, he was insistent. So this shows Joseph was committed to his dad's command. He wanted to fulfill that. He wanted to, to, to obey his dad. So that's Jacob's commandment. That's Joseph's commitment. Now let's look at the brother's corruption. The brother's corruption. And let's look at verses 18 to 20. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. The first part of the brother's corruptions was the brother's plot. The, brother ha the brothers had this plot, and it was very simple, death to Joseph. It was death to Joseph. And listen to some of the things they said. They said, here comes that dreamer. There's no hint of brotherly love in their voice there. Uh, the, the, these, are, uh, these are very jealous brothers and angry brothers. Here comes this dreamer. And to think about it, Joseph's dreams were their nightmares. Because in the beginning of the chapter, Joseph has these two dreams. And in those two dreams, uh, both times the, uh, the brothers are basically bowing down to Joseph. He is going to rule over them. And they don't like that idea. They don't like that idea at all. Joseph's dreams are their nightmare. And the only happy ending to the brothers' nightmare was to kill Joseph. They wanted to kill Joseph. And isn't it interesting, in chapter, in chapter 37, verse 4, it says they hated Joseph so much 
They couldn't say any nice words about him. And now in, cha in chapter 37, verse 18, 14 verses later, they hated him so much. It wasn't about nice words anymore. They wanted to kill him. Their hatred for him had grown. It had gotten out of control. They hated him so much, they wanted him dead. It's pretty extreme. This doesn't seem like a very happy family. And as we continue on to look at the brothers' uh, uh, corruption, we see next is Reuben's proposal in verses 21 to 25. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down and ate their meal. And so Reuben's proposal was number one, hey, let's cast him into the cistern. Let's cast him into the cistern. And the brothers agreed. And on the one hand, you know, Reuben has more, than, more, more reason to hate Joseph than any other brother. He was the oldest brother. He was supposed to be the, the next family leader. And according to Joseph's dreams, it was going to be Joseph. And so, you know, he had every right to hate Joseph probably the most. But on the other hand, Reuben knows he also has a responsibility. He's the oldest brother. And he has a responsibility to protect his little brother, if at all possible. So he tells the rest, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into the cistern. There's no water. So he can die of starvation and thirst. That was the first part of his proposal. The second was the secret part. The second part was to conduct a secret rescue of Joseph and return him to Jacob. And so Reuben... Uh, we, we see some maybe hope for Reuben that maybe he does have a heart and he doesn't want to kill his brother. And so he says, hey, I got an idea. Let's put him in the cistern. And when the brothers are out caring for the flock, I'll get him out. I'll return him, return him to Jacob. I'll rescue him. Sounds like a great idea. But in the beginning of chapter, uh, of verse 25 of chapter 37, I like how the brothers are really worked up about this whole, this whole idea of getting rid of their brother. They throw him in the cistern, and what do they do? They sit down for lunch. Yeah, they're pretty worked up about this. Uh, they're, they're pretty concerned about their, their brother, their flesh and blood. It's crazy. These guys are, are great brothers, the kind that you want to have. And we move on in, in, in the story in verses 25 to 28. We see now Judah has another plan. And in verse 25, it says, As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah had said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Mennonite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. 
Now we see Judah's plan, and Judah's plan was very simply, you know what? Hey, let's get rewarded for getting rid of Joseph. Let's get rewarded for getting rid of Joseph. Apparently, Reuben had to go somewhere else, and he was out maybe with the flocks. And so now Judah comes up with this plan. Here comes these Ishmaelite or Midianite merchants, and they're on their way to Egypt. Let's sell Joseph to them. Let's get rid of him. Let's sell Joseph to him, and then he can be sold somewhere else in Egypt. Judah says, hey, you know what? Joseph's our own flesh and blood. I don't really like him, but let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. And Joseph is sold for about eight ounces of silver. Eight ounces of silver. They sold, and which today would equal $250.25. If you divide that by 11, $22.75 a brother. Now, like I said, at my home, uh, Haley has a little brother, and uh, maybe she'd sell him for $250. <clears throat> she might do that. Uh, $250 could buy a lot of different things, but $22.75, probably not. She could probably get slave labor out of him for 22, worth $22.75. But in essence, they're selling their brother for $23 a piece. They really don't like him, do they? I mean, this, this dysfunction is amazing. And as we see the corruption of, of, of the brothers, we read on in verses 29 and 30. It says, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Now we see Reuben panics because his secret plan of rescuing his brother is now foiled. He can't rescue his brother anymore. They've already sold him. He is gone. We see a rescue mission is missed. And Reuben probably panics because he knows his father's going to blame him. He knows his father's going to blame him. And so he is full of panic. These brothers are some, some, real, some real great brothers to have. They really care for one another. They really love one another. They're pretty corrupt. And as we go on to the story, next we see Jacob's cries. In verses 31 and 32, it goes on, it says, Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see if this is your son's robe. First, we see the brothers' deceit. They're continuing on in their cover-up plan. They've sold Joseph. They've gotten rid of him. He is, he's now on his way to Egypt, but they need to continue the deceit. They're out to deceive their father about Joseph's fate. So they take, they take that, that coat that they hated, that Joseph loved so much, and they dipped it in blood, and they go back to their dad, and they ask him, hey, look at this coat. Isn't this your brother's coat? There's like no compassion for these guys. They have no compassion. They know what the answer is going to be. These guys have no heart. But they got to continue this, this deceit. We read on in verse 33 to 35. He recognized it and said, It's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. 
Joseph surely has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Here we see Jacob's distress. Of course he recognizes the coat. Of course he knows it's, it's Joseph's coat. And it's interesting that, you know, some might say, well, his brothers didn't lie to his dad. They didn't say, hey, this is Joseph's coat. He was killed by a ferocious animal. But they certainly set him up to believe that. They, they were deceitful in their practice. They knew exactly what was going to happen when they gave this coat to their dad. They knew exactly that he'd come to the conclusion that he had been killed by a ferocious animal. And now we see that Joseph is distressed and he's heartbroken. He falls into the depths of despair and he vows to grieve until the day he joins Joseph in death. These cold, callous men have broken their father's heart and they don't care. They don't care. Find the last thing here is as, as Jacob cries is the brother's disgrace. And again, in verse 35, it says, all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. You know what? These cold men could have revealed their hypocrisy. Uh, they, they reveal their hypocrisy by, by trying to comfort their, their father, knowing what they've just done. Their dad's upset. They know that they've just sold Joseph and got rid of him. And, and so what do they do? They come to try, to, try to, to help soothe and encourage their dad. Not a single one of those cowards, not a single one of them had the courage to stand up and say, hey, you know what, dad? Here's what really happened. Your son's not dead. I can't stand to see you cry and mourn like this. Your son's not dead. Here's the real truth. Not one of them said that. And in the end, you know what? Their father was in better shape than they were. Their father was in a better place, even in the midst of his grief, than they were. He lived every day with grief, but they lived every day with guilt. He, they lived every day with guilt. It says in, in Genesis 42, verse 21, about these brothers. They're in Egypt now. They said, then they said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Can you hear the guilt in their voice? They're in Egypt now and they're in trouble and, and now they realize, you know what? We're in trouble because we're guilty. We're in trouble because we had this great plan to get rid of our brother and we lied and we covered it up and, and, and we sinned against our brother and against our dad. The guilt is just kind of oozing out from them it's a great family to be a part of isn't it holiday time around their house i'm sure was was real fun they're real close and so you read a story like this and we read a story like this and and the natural response is well that's a great story that'd make a great movie or something like that but what does it have to do with us what does it mean for us and as i was thinking about it this week in conclusion, I think the story teaches us two important things. Two important things 
two important causes of family or relational dysfunction that I think we need to be aware of. Because, you know, it's easy to be entertained with family dysfunction. It's easy to point out family dysfunction in other people's lives or relationships. But if we're really honest, we all have a little bit of dysfunction in all of our relationships, in all of our families. And, I, so, and so I think there's two important causes for us to realize that cause this relational breakdown. And the first one is this, it's hatred. God hates hate. God hates hate. And as I was looking through some news stories for the last year or so, our news is full of so many hate crimes. So many hate crimes. So many crimes motivated by hate. I came across a a story from Ohio about Samuel Mullet Sr. It's an interesting name, isn't it? And he was the leader. He was the bishop of this renegade Amish group. And he was being uh, tried and, and charged with, with a hate crime because him and, and some of his other buddies attacked nine other Amish people, shearing their beards and hair like they were animals. So we here have Samuel Mullet, who obviously was growing his hair, is shaving other people's beard and hair, other Amish people's beard and hair, just to shame them. Just to shame them. Uh, and when I came across another story about Zachary Tenen, He was a 19-year-old college student from from Michigan State University, and he was at a party, and two guys came up to him, and and they asked him a simple question, hey, are you Jewish? And he said, yes, I am. And these two guys gave the Nazi salute, and they knocked him out unconscious, breaking his jaw in two places, and they stapled his mouth shut. And we look at a story like that, and we see a story like that, and we see, how could that happen? You know how it happens? It happens because of hate. It happens because of hate, and God hates hate. If you want to turn with me to Matthew 5, we'll see that God hates hate. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. These are very familiar, uh, very familiar verses from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's really the antidote for hate. But in Matthew 5, Starting in verse 43, it says, You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, you're, therefore, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And here Jesus, he's addressing the religious leaders and their teaching. And the religious leaders, uh, they had full knowledge of the scripture, yet they only partially taught it and practiced it. And this is a great example of that. It's a great example of, of, of omission and addition to God's word. And very simply, first of all, they, they, their omission was, they say, hey, love your neighbor. But in Leviticus 19, God said, hey, don't seek revenge. Don't have any grudges against any one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the omission there? They said, hey, love your neighbor, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But Jesus says, love your neighbors as yourself. They narrowed 
the application of love. It says, love your neighbor. Well, that, that could mean a lot of things. You know, I love my neighbor, so, you know, I might shovel their sidewalk. But when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about some extreme love. Because I don't know about you, but we all love ourselves. We all love ourselves a whole lot. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is, he is, he's calling us to an extreme extension of love. But the religious leaders, they didn't want to go that extreme. So they just omitted that. And they said, just love your neighbor. Well, that means maybe just say hi to them when you're walking, walking in the house or, or just do a few nice things for him. But Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's calling for an extreme form of love. So they admitted that, that love your neighbor as yourself, but they also added something to God's word. They said, you know what? Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. The religious leaders taught that, hey, it's all right to hate your enemies. But here in Matthew 5, John MacArthur says it's the most powerful teaching in scripture about the meaning of love. The love that God commands of his people is a love so great that he even embraces its enemies. The religious leaders were saying, hey, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is clearing up what they had added to scripture. Agape love is what Jesus is talking about. It's a love that seeks and works to meet another's highest well-being and benefit. It's not just words or feelings, but it's action. And if we want to overcome hate, it's only with love. And I don't know about you, but I've seen some love this week. Uh, I've seen a lot of people that have showered their love on us as Dana's re recovering from her surgery. And they've brought us meals and they've sent cards and, and called to check up and, and just amazing demonstrations of love. I've seen another amazing demonstration of love here in our body this week of people that gathered around a family going through a difficult time. And they met together and they prayed for that family. And, and as they were going through that difficult time, they, they were sending text messages and emails and checking up. And, and I've seen love. And it's an amazing, amazing, amazing expression. The only way to overcome hate is through love. But the way to dysfunction and the way to relational breakdown is through hate. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Lies and deceit destroy relationships. Lies and deceit destroy relationships. It says God detests deceit. You know, God, God hates lying. Lying characterizes Satan. In, in John 8, 44, it says that Satan's the father of lies. It says that Satan is the father of lies. And in Titus 1, 2, it says God does not lie. So when believers, when we lie, we're imitating Satan. We're not imitating God. And of all people, we should tell the truth. And in Colossians 3, in Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul is talking about this, and he says this. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. 
You know, we've sang that song, I am not the same, I'm a new creation. And, you know, here Paul talks about it in, in Colossians 3, and he talks about it in Ephesians 4, and it's talking about when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and we are a new creation. Yes, we still struggle with sin. Yes, our flesh uh, is still drawn to sin, but you know what? We are transformed on the inside out, and so we should be full of truth and not lies. The best policy is always to tell the truth, regardless of the personal cost. Because when you tell one lie, it won't be long till you tell another lie. And we saw that this week, haven't we? Lance Armstrong has dominated our news cycle. He has dominated the news cycle. And it's been revealed lie after lie after lie after lie that he's told. And less many people shaking their head and just, I just can't believe this. And you know what the saddest thing about the whole ordeal with Lance Armstrong? It's not that he's lost his titles. It's not that he's lost his sponsorships. It's not that he's lost his position in the Live Strong uh, Foundation. It's not that he's probably losing a lot of money. The saddest thing about Lance Armstrong is he's lost his reputation. There are people that are saying, how can I ever believe anything he's ever said? Because his whole life has been a lie. His whole life has been a lie. There is so much dysfunction in that. Lies destroy relationships. So as we close this morning, trying to think, well, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Very simply this. Number one, hate separates and love integrates. Hate separates, love integrates. You know what hate does? Hate separates. It divides people. It, 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 it draws a line and says, you know what? I don't like you. I'll stay over here. It just separates. But love unites. Love says, you know what? Hey, we might not agree on everything. We might not see to eye, eye to eye on everything, but you know what? I love you, and that love unites. I love you in spite. And it brings people together. Love uh, love integrates and hate separates. And finally, this deceit dominates and truth liberates. When I think about Joseph's brothers' lives, from the time they sold Joseph into slavery, that one act dominated their life because they had to keep the story going. They had to tell lie after lie after lie. You know, someone might have come up to them and said, hey, I only count 11 brothers. Now, I mean, uh, there was 12, right? What happened to your other brother? What do they do? Got to keep our story going. Got to keep our cover story going. Got to make sure it's going. So they tell another lie. It dominated their life, but you know what? Truth liberates. Truth brings freedom. Truth brings freedom. It doesn't bring freedom from the consequences, but you know what? A lot of times it brings freedom from that lifestyle and even the guilt that comes along with it. And I was, I was watching the, the news about Lance Armstrong, and, 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 and I, I saw someone tweet about Lance Armstrong, and, and they said, you know what? No matter all the bad press that Lance Armstrong's getting, he's experiencing some kind of freedom. He's come clean. He's told the truth. So my question is this. As you think about your relationships, as you think about your family, am I adding to the dysfunction because I hate? 
because I don't tell the truth or, 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 or am I the type of person being the type of person that God wants me to be that, that loves and tells the truth. God wants us to be his representatives and we know for a fact that God is a God of love and he's a God of truth. And he wants our relationships, whether in our, in our physical family or our family of believers or any kind of relationship, he wants us to be about truth and about love. That's the kind of reputation he wants us to have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to uh, look at your word this morning. Thank you for this great example of of how you want us to live our lives. And Lord, you know it's hard at times. It's hard to, to extend love to, to those who maybe have hurt us. It's, it's, it's hard to, to love even those who have lied to us. And Lord, it's, sometimes it's, it's easier just to, to tell a little lie instead of telling the truth. But, but Lord, we know that that's not true because in the end comes the guilt and comes the uh, the consequence of, of going against what you, want, you, what you want us to do. And Lord, today I pray that, that our families and our family here at Mount Calvary wouldn't be dysfunctional. That we would be known by our love and by our truth, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close with our last song, we're going to remain seating, and the men are going to come and, and uh, take the offering. And if you're here visiting with us today, uh, you're our guest. Don't feel obligated to put anything in the, in the offering plate except that little visitor card that filled out in your bulletin. But this is just a way for our people uh, to give and continue to, uh, to, to worship God with our tithes and offerings. Find a voice 
may be seated. I mean, no, you're seated. You may be dismissed.